this is Dr. Phil, and you found your way to fill in the blanks. And today, I have a very special guest on. I'm talking to Jim Gray. I'm talking to Jim Gray. I mean, you guys know this is a 12-time Emmy Award-winning sportscaster. He's a sports historian. When I say historian, this is a guy that has made his life talking to what we call goats, the greatest of all time. And he's taken time to sit down with me today on fill in the blanks, which I really appreciate. Jim, I just want to talk about your amazing career and some of the things that you consider to be highlights. You've been doing this well, you say you got your first break way back in 1978, right? That's correct. Uh, thanks so much for having me on, Dr. Phil. I really appreciate it. And to fill in the blanks, yes, I was a sports intern and then a videotape editor. They were converting from film to videotape. And I worked for the ABC station in Denver. And uh, one day they came in, I was editing the Broncos show, the Broncos highlight show, and they were getting ready for the draft. The coach's name was a man named Red Miller who took him to their first Super Bowl. Right. And Muhammad Ali came to the airport, old Stapleton International. It doesn't exist anymore. And he was two and a half hours early. He was getting ready to fight Leon Spinks. And then after that, he was going to fight a Denver Bronco in an exhibition at Mile High Stadium <laughs> named Lyle Alzado, who became a very famous football player. Anyway, they could not get a hold of anybody. The news anchors weren't there. The sports anchors and reporters weren't there. And I was the only guy. And the assignment editor ran in and she said, you're the sports intern. You know something about sports? I said, yeah. She said, Muhammad Ali's two and a half hours early at the airport. Nobody has cell phones. Nobody has beepers. If you can't find those other people, they don't answer their home phone. You're out of luck. So I went out there. Ali gave me 45 minutes. You're kidding me. The first thing he said to me, Dr. Phil, is you're doing this interview? And the whole entourage laughed. But that laughter made me relaxed because it was funny because I'd never done an interview before. And then he said, after the third question, you sound like the local Howard Cosell. Well, that was the greatest compliment I had ever heard in my life because I loved Howard Cosell and Ali and all those interviews. Anyway, he gave me 45 minutes. I came to edit myself out. The head of the uh, network bureau there for ABC came in. His name was Roger Ogden. He looked at the tape twice for an hour and a half, barely knew my name. He said, you and this videotape, I'm going to put it on the air. It's barely adequate. So I tell everybody, Dr. Phil, I've been barely adequate ever since. <laughs> what a story. And he gave you 45 minutes. He did. And back then, back then, all the ABC stations, a man named Frank Reynolds was the man who would anchor World News Tonight. So everybody would put up from the ABC stations the best stuff from the local stations called right. DEF, ABC, DEF. And DEF stood for Daily Electronic Feed. Right. So they put up my interview, an 18-year-old interviewing Muhammad Ali, and all the stations across the country took it down, as well as the network. And they played this, and Ali saw the reaction to it. And so he started inviting me and letting me come cover him for the rest of his fights. Well, it opened every door in the world for me, Dr. Phil. Wow. What a great story. Do you remember the first question you asked him? Uh, I asked him if, if he was he, he'd never lost twice before, and he was going to fight Spinks. And he, he looked at me like, you're doing this interview? That's the first question you're asking me? You've never lost twice? And you're good? Yeah, that was the first question I asked. You know, I had paid attention to sports. I loved watching boxing with my dad. He was a huge boxing right. fan. And he would took, took me to all the fights. So I was aware of the material just because I was a huge fan. I mean, I didn't study it inside and out because I was in school. But 
I knew enough about Ali to get through the 45 minutes and it was, it was so enthralling and I was so excited and, and he was so nice. He was just so considerate and kind and fun. Well, what did you think when you got in the car and drove out of Stapleton Airport? I've been to Stapleton many times. My dad and I used to fly in and out of there a lot in a private airplane when he was delivering drill bits into the Rocky Mountains. We lived in Denver for three years, so I know that airport well. But what did you think when you drove out of that airport having interviewed Muhammad Ali, the greatest of all time at 18 years old? What did you say to yourself when you drove out of there? Well, I'm actually getting chills you saying that right now because I haven't thought of it like that. The first thing I did is I drove down Monaco, which is a street not far from 32nd where you come out of the airport. Right. And on approximately 31st in Monaco used to live Sonny Liston, who Muhammad Ali as Cassius Clay knocked out. And my dad would take me every single year by Sonny Liston's house to look at the Christmas lights. Really? He would, because he had a huge display and sometimes the champ would be outside. So I drove by Sonny Liston's house on purpose because I remember the night that Sonny Liston was beaten by Cassius Clay, who became Muhammad Ali. And right. my dad said, he knocked his lights out. And I was just a little kid. I was three or four years old. And I said, that means we can't go over to his house anymore. <laughs> I was, when he said lights out, I was thinking no more Christmas lights. So I intentionally drove by Sonny Liston's house and I thought, wow, like here was my whole life in front of me and I just got to talk to the champ. I just got to talk to Muhammad Ali. And so it was just an exhilarating feeling. I didn't think I'd be an interviewer. I thought I did fine. I thought I did well, but I was just happy. And then I didn't think they'd put me on the air until after the news director uh, came in. Yeah. But what was your next assignment after that? What was the next interview you got to do? a story on Ralphie the Buffalo, believe it or not, at the University of Colorado. So I went from the greatest person on the planet. Boy, that is a long get, way to fall, Jim. To trying to get an animal to grunt. That's a long way to fall. <laughs> That's what happened. Well, you did land on your feet because since 1994, you've been a part of the Showtime Championship boxing broadcast team. And what a great job you have done. You talked to George Foreman, Larry Holmes, Lennox Lewis, Sugar Ray Leonard, Robert Duran, Marvin Hagler. I mean, you've talked to the absolute names that really define the sport. There are so many that are in the game. And then there are those that I won't say they're bigger than the game, but they're the names that you really think of when you think about boxing. And, you know, George Foreman, Holmes, Sugar Ray Leonard, it's just amazing that you've been able to stand with and talk to every one of those guys. It's been, it's been fantastic. And, you know, the, you know I've been fortunate to, uh, you know, in the book, uh, Talking to Goats, the first chapter, Dr. Phil, is on Mike Tyson and doing all of his fights, uh, you know, particularly after he became the youngest heavyweight champion in the world. And then he moved over to Showtime and, uh, of course, the year biting with the uh, Evander Holyfield and, and so many people have become, uh, used to me interviewing Mike and, and, uh, you know, he writes on the back of the book, we became a sensational duo. And, and, you know, when people have compared us to, to what Ali and Cosell had, you know, it's just, it just, you know, it's, it's a, such a great humbling feeling and, and to have been able to have seen the roller coaster that is Mike Tyson, uh, from all of the all stuff right. that has gone on with him, the highs, 
the loans, the in-between. One time he threatened to kill me on the air. 45 seconds later, Dr. Philly kissed me on the cheek. Yeah. And let me tell you, it was far more disturbing that he kissed me than when he threatened <laughs> to kill me. <laughs> Not sure which was worse, the threat or the kiss, huh? <laughs> the kiss, the kiss, the kiss. It wasn't close, the kiss. Well, I know Mike, and he is a complex guy. Tell us something about Mike Tyson that's not apparent to all the fans that watch him. He's brilliant. He has tremendous recall. He's a historian of all kinds of world affairs. Um, he has tattoos on each shoulder, one of the great Arthur Ashe in Days of Grace, the other of Chairman Mao. He can recite the tenets of the Red Book. He can give you scriptures. He can tell you about uh, Napoleon, uh, uh, Alexander. Uh, he has a high degree, a high degree of intellect, and he has the wherewithal and recall uh, that's astonishing. Uh, he, he's also capable of doing tremendously unpredictable, despicable acts, uh, at least he was, and, and you just never know what's coming. So it's been so much it's really been so interesting and so much fun to cover him because you just don't know from moment to moment what's coming next. You have no idea. Yeah, I think what strikes me about him, and I don't know him well, and I certainly don't know him as well as you do, but his pride as a father. He has a daughter, as you know, that's a very accomplished tennis player, and he has tremendous pride and such respect for her as a young woman, and given his history— with the domestic violence and all, and then to see such great respect that he has for his young daughter is really a contrast. You know, it really is. And, and, and he never ceases to amaze me. And, and I'm sure with how you've gotten to know him, he's so honest. And, you know, we just don't have that in sports or in life anymore. He will tell you how he feels at the moment. And he will, and he will be explicit about uh, exactly where he is and where he stands. Um, when he bit the ear off, he came out and he answered the questions. He didn't say, a lawyer, I'll handle it. I'll hide behind a PR statement. I can't do it until the Nevada State Athletic Commission decides if they're going to pay me. He answered the questions. When he came out of jail, he stood there and let me do the first interview. And he took his medicine and he didn't try and say it was my trainer's fault or uh, my manager's fault or my equipment was bad. Whatever it was, even when it was awful, he was there to answer the questions. Nobody does that. Nobody yeah. anymore does that. When something bad happens to somebody, you know, they hide behind one of these telephones or they, or they have somebody issue a statement or, or they release a, a lawyer says, we can't talk about it. There's a pending court date. So I've always respected the fact that he was willing, willing to do that. And no matter what the circumstance was. I just recently asked him about that, Dr. Phil. I said, why, 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 why did you do that? He said, because no one was going to take my glory. I said, but those weren't glorious achievements. And he said, they were mine. And that was my glory, even when it was bad. He has a different yardstick and a different metric. But, you know, he came from such a troubled childhood and such a troubled background that he truly believes when he fights, he's told me straight up that he believes when he fights, he's fighting for survival to him. And so it's just a different yardstick that he measures what he uses to justify what he does. 
And I don't know that he's still that way, but what did you think about his recent fight? I thought it was great. I thought it was great for Mike. I was happy that uh, there were so many people who paid to view it. Uh, so it was a huge payday for him. I thought that in terms of how he fought at 54 years of age, it was very representative. He lost 100 pounds. He was in terrific shape. Uh, he did very, very well. Uh, he can continue that. There will be an appetite for more of that because of the way that he performed. And uh, Roy Jones Jr. acquitted himself as well. Uh, Mike, I don't think that Mike tried to hurt Roy Jones. You know, he didn't try to hit him in the head. Now he hit him like Snoop Dogg said on the air that night. He was one of the commentators with us. He said, put a little spice on those ribs, please, Mr. Tyson. And (laughs) I think think that... uh, that Roy Jones Jr.'s did get caught with some, but I think I think Mike did very well, and it was fun to see him. You know, there's a whole couple of generations now that haven't seen Mike fight. I mean, he hadn't been in the ring for 15 years and hadn't fought a meaningful fight for 20 years, so that's, you know, that's quite a long time. What did those two make off of that fight? Well, they say there's more than 2 million buys, and if you just do the math, at $49 a buy, that's $100 million. And then you subtract that the cable operators get half. So there's $50 million for Mike and Roy Jones Jr. And I think that Mike probably got 80% of that. So yeah. it's a big night. That's whatever it costs to produce it and, you know, pay, yeah. pay, pay for the Staples Center and, you know, pay for the ring and expenses and, you know, pay people like uh, uh, for all the coronavirus tests and so forth. Even with all the expenses, that's still a good payday. Who do you think won that fight? Oh, it wasn't close. Mike Tyson eviscerated him, but... But Roy did well, but, but my, you know, you cannot judge in the state of California. They do not allow an exhibition to be judged. That's why. So it was predetermined before they fought that it was going to be a draw and they had celebrity judges doing it from television. So because the commission won't allow that for whatever the reason, uh, exhibitions don't get judged. Yeah. I thought Mike was very gracious afterwards. And I thought Roy Jones Jr. was too. I thought they were both very gracious afterwards. Yeah. Mike, Mike said to me, I did that interview. Mike said to me, why don't you care about my rear end. And I said, everybody is worried about him getting hurt. Why don't you care? I said, well, nobody thinks a giant can get hurt and you're the giant here. Yeah. Because you weren't in the ring with Mike Tyson. That's why nobody's worried about your (laughs) rear end. (laughs) That's exactly right. Exactly. Let me ask you just one interviewer to another. And I've been certainly described as one that asks the hard questions sometimes. When you decide that you're going to cut to the chase and ask the hard questions. Do you decide that ahead of time or do you read the moment and do it just in the moment? Like in 1999, the world series moment, when you asked Pete Rose, if he wanted to apologize to his fans for gambling on baseball, did you plan to ask that question? Did you read the moment at the time and make the decision? Had you worked it out in your mind? How did that come about with you? In that moment, it was planned to ask because Pete had not been on the field for 10 years after signing away his own banishment from baseball in 1989. And then the ceremony for the All-Century team was 10 years later in 1999. So this being his first time on the field after that, you know, it would have been, you know, derelict of duty not to ask him about the gambling and, and him being back out there. So it was planned. And as you know, Dr. Phil, even though your name is on front of the screen and you represent you and your show, nobody does anything in television by themselves. There's a whole group of people who are behind all of this. And so my bosses at NBC, Dick Eversall, my colleagues on the air, Bob Costas, Bob Euchre, Joe Morgan, who was a former teammate, 
uh, and the producer, we all went through this and we all knew that this is what had to, had to happen. Now, having said that, you know, that moment at that time and that melancholy feeling that, that was so well described by Vin Scully as something we will never see again in our lifetimes. And then you have Ted Williams being helped out there by Willie Mays, who's being his hand shaken by Sandy Colfax. And, yeah. you know, there's Frank Robinson. And so you just have Stan Musial. So you have this warm, beautiful feeling being conveyed across the television screens to America. And then I come on asking about gambling, I can see how the tone changed immediately and, and the abruptness of that, you know, might have detracted uh, from that beautiful ceremony that everybody had a warmness in their heart about. And um, so, so that, that became part of the controversy as well. But no, the questions, uh, at least uh, about gambling, not how it all careened beyond the first two or three questions uh, were planned, but the rest of it just kind of snowballed after that. Right. But as you say, that's the elephant in the room, right? I mean, it's been 10 years. People want to know, and he's still making noise at that time about wanting to be in the Hall of Fame. And it was a snap turn from, as you say, the moment, but then yeah, he walks out there and it's there. I mean, somebody's got to ask the question, right? The fact that he elected to continue to lie and, and try and deceive the public and, and baseball, you know, and I just, you know, Dr. Phil, I just did an interview uh, with Pete Rose about a month ago because uh, about a year and a half ago, I was asked to uh, to introduce Mike Tyson was being honored by the Cancer Society. So I introduced him and at that same evening, unbeknownst to me, they were honoring Pete Rose as well. So at that dinner before the honors were made, Pete Rose uh, got up and started to walk over to our table and I'm sitting with Mike and Kiki Tyson, his wife and my wife, Fran. And I said to my wife, Fran, "Uh oh, here comes Pete. How's this going to go? So he walked over, Dr. Phil, and he, I jumped up out of the chair and he stuck out his hand and he said, you do a great job. You're really terrific at what you do. And I kind of looked at him and shook his hand and he said it again. And I said, you really don't mean that, do you, Pete? You really do not mean that. And he said, no, I do. What happened between us was a long time ago and you were just doing your job. And so I just kind of looked at him and Mike jumped up and he turned to Mike and he said, who do you think would have won that fight between Jim and I? And Tyson said, Jim, for sure. No question about that. <laughs> so that kind of broke the ice. And then I decided, because we were doing a special for Talking to Goats on Fox, uh, the book. And I said, let me call Pete and see if he'd participate in this. So, we, so he, he decided he would. I went to Las Vegas at the Bellagio Hotel. Believe it or not, a casino. We did the interview. <laughs> right, and, where uh, the gambling takes place. <laughs> and I asked him at the end of the interview, do you still bet on baseball, Pete? And he said, yes, I do. He said, I haven't this year. It was a surprising admission to me. He said, but, and here's the caveat. He said, I only bet on baseball now legally, not illegally anymore, and only through the casino. And he was, he was, he was great. Uh, he answered all the questions. He said, I thought that by me continuing to not be forthcoming, that they did not have the evidence. And he said, I've been playing baseball since I was eight years old. And at this point, I'm now 49. So this is the only thing I knew. And I had to feed my family. If I admitted to it publicly, I know I'm going to be banished. So I just had to continue to hope they didn't have the evidence. Turned out they had all the evidence, is what Rose says. And it was just a huge mistake. Yeah. And at least he owns it now. I mean, clearly, I'm glad to see that. And I think fans were glad to see it, even those that defended him at the time, I think, are glad to see him come clean about it. 
I, I think they are too. And, and perhaps had he done it sooner, uh, he might have had a chance to, to be back in baseball and be considered for the Hall of Fame, which, by the way, I really personally believe we don't live in the Soviet Union. Okay, a man's records are a man's records. And he obtained those fairly and squarely. And they changed the rules for him to be considered for the Hall of Fame after he signed his banishment. They changed the rules in 1991. He signed his banishment in 1989. Well, they got coupled two years later. So I, I think the voters should decide. I really do. Let's let the voters decide whether a man's accomplishments outweigh what was his lack of integrity to the game. And let them decide. It should not be decided because they changed the rules after the fact. Would you vote for him to be in the Hall of Fame? Yes, I would, with the caveat that he could never be allowed back on the field or in any type of a managerial or prominent position in baseball. And I would also require that the plaque say that he was banned for baseball for violating the, the basic only tenet that is on every clubhouse door, and that's no gambling. But yes, I mean, when you have the most hits ever – I mean, he made a real interesting point, Dr. Phil, in, in our uh, interview. He said, the man with the most Cy Youngs, Roger Clemens, the man with the most home runs, Barry Bonds, and the man with the most hits, myself, all three of us are excluded from the Hall of Fame. He said, I think that says more about baseball in the Hall of Fame than it does any of us. Yeah, I think there's a point there. You have to decide what's the criteria for getting in? And if you jump higher, run faster, if you do the actual skills on the field, you've got to decide, is that what determines it? Or is it the decisions you make off the field? And like you say, with caveats, then it makes sense. But others are in the Hall of Fame for steroids. We know that. Right. And and they've been celebrated. They weren't caught, but they're being celebrated. Right. For crying out loud, Bud Selig, who oversaw this whole mess, and until he was called out on the carpet by Congress for Balco and was shamed and embarrassed, he did very, virtually nothing, very, very little. And he's in the Hall of Fame, so he presided over the whole mess. They profiteer over the whole mess. Yeah. And he goes into the Hall of Fame, but we say the man who hit the most home runs isn't. Now, I'm not condoning, nor am I saying that I think the use of performance-enhancing drugs is good on any level, any time, and should be condoned. I don't. I'm just saying. You already put people in there and you celebrate those who presided over it in there. Then I think that the accomplishments of others, I mean, look at other times that have gone on. The mound was higher or lower. African-Americans were not permitted to play. Um, You know, they had the Negro leagues and they didn't play against those players. Well, all those players weren't playing against the best players out there because African-Americans were barred because of the discrimination. So, there's been different times and eras, so I think the steroid era should, uh, should be looked at as perhaps that era. And it's unfortunate for the guys who didn't cheat, who got robbed of the money, who got robbed of the records, who tried to do it the right way. And I, have, I really have compassion and sympathy for them. But I think at some point, you know, you can't, you can't have Barry Bonds hitting, you know, more home runs than Hank Aaron and not have that be uh, acknowledged in the Hall of Fame. Yeah. It's a tough issue on all of these. None, none of, none of, you know, there's no, there's no cut and dry, clear, easy answer. Yeah, well, we'll see what happens, of course. But like you say, there's not an easy answer to it. The first page of a book never tells the full story. 
And those news alerts and headlines, like the ones we get on our phones, don't even scratch the surface of what the story is really all about. Stories are like people, multi-layered and complex. It takes some digging to find the truth, but when we find it, it can change our world. We like to dig. The news on Merritt Street, essential television. Do you personally have a favorite sport? I really enjoyed them all. I mean, I really, I, I, I guess I would narrow it down by saying I love football, basketball, boxing, and golf. Uh, those yeah. are the four that I've, you know, concentrated the majority of my career on. Do you prefer professional? Do you prefer college? I know you've been involved in commentating with the Olympics and all. I mean, is there something that warms your heart more than anything else? You know, I've, I've loved professional basketball and professional football and a great prize fight. And I've loved the Olympics and my masters, the masters has been my favorite event because my dad got to go with me every year and did a chapter in the book on that. Uh, my dad and the masters and sitting up there keeping score for me on the tower. So, you know, I, I'd say that those are, those are my favorites, but I mean, when you're sitting there at the opening ceremony of the Olympics, there's nothing really better uh, than to see that torch lit and the humanity uh, of, of mankind and all those great men and women who are getting ready to compete from 200 countries around the world. Um, you know, there's really nothing much better than that. And the feeling that you get just seeing that, you know that anything's almost possible on the planet if we could all come together. Yeah. And of course, it's across an extended period of time, which makes it special. But if there was one thing that I think lifts everything up, it's got to be the Olympics because it's so international and it cuts across all the politics you know, notwithstanding Chinese judging sometimes and that sort of thing. But it does seem to transcend all the politics and international lines and stuff. And I always take such great pride in America in the Olympics. I always stop and watch it. I don't care if it's in the middle of the night or whatever. I always watch it. It just has always been special to me. There's nothing better, Dr. Phil. I've, I've been able to cover 10 Olympics and been to 14 or 15 of them. And when you look up and you stare at the top of those stadiums and you see all of those flags waving and you know all of the hard work and dedication that goes into this. I mean, Jesse Owens said it best all those years ago. He said, you can have all the talent, all the pride and all the courage in the world, but none of it means anything if you don't have the ability to endure. And look at what all of those folks endure and some in war ravaged land, some with famine, some with no water, uh, you know, and then the competition in the great countries like, uh, like Russia and China and, and, and the United States where there's so many great athletes and then to be on that field to participate. And when you take out the politics and you take out the systemic doping and performance enhancing drugs, that some of these countries have been engaged in. If you can take all of that out and you can see through rose-colored glasses, like a man named Bud Greenspan used to do, who was the great historian and documentarian, you can really see here is the glory of our times. Here is, here is everything that we all aspire to be, particularly when those aspects are eliminated. And it is, like you said, it's, it's wonderful. You can't help but feel the pride, pride of being alive and pride in our country of being an American, uh, you know, when we're participating. You're so right. And I've got to ask you this question because you get a different perspective than probably anybody else on the planet about this. And I've asked some of them this question, but 
Is there something that you have seen as a common denominator that makes goats goats? And what I mean is, if you look at athletes and you see somebody like a Tom Brady or a Michael Jordan, and you look at their reaction time, their speed in the 40, their strength on the bench press or whatever, there may not be that big a difference between them and somebody on the practice squad or somebody that didn't make the cut. What, in your opinion, makes the greatest of all time in their sport? Is there a common denominator that you see cut across these men and women that make them the greatest? They all go about it differently, but I can see something common. They all have touched perfection from one moment to another, but they all want to hold it and grasp it. And it's like a jellyfish and it just slips through their fingers. But when they touch it, it's like being an addict. They want to touch it again and again and again, because they know they can. And I asked Kobe Bryant about that at one point. And he said, look, I'm a realist. I know perfection is unattainable, but it sure is a heck of a lot of fun trying. And that's what they do. Brady has had the perfect quarter, the perfect comeback, the perfect game, almost the perfect season, even though they lost to the Giants. So he's been there and he's won six times. So many people would say after one, that's enough. These guys never have enough because they want it more and more. And the best example I could really give you, Dr. Phil, is think about Michael Phelps for just a moment. Michael Phelps spent the majority of his adult life underwater, staring at a black line day in and day out, month in and month out, year in and year out. For what reason? So that he could figure out how to be an eyelash or a fingernail ahead of somebody else from the rest of the world so that he could win those 28 medals and those 23 gold medals. So he was tormented by that but nobody else has ever done it. He's the most decorated ever. But think about the mental anguish. And he did a beautiful documentary about this on HBO within the past six or eight months. Think about the mental anguish of putting everything else in your life aside to do that. But while you're doing that, all of this that's gone in your life has to go through your mind because you're just staring at a black line. Now think about that. How many people on the planet can have that discipline? Well, I can name a few of them. Tiger Woods, Michael Phelps, Michael Jordan, Muhammad Ali, Tom Brady, Floyd Mayweather. There's just so very few, so very few. Serena Williams, and and there you have it. I mean, so that's why they're so special, and that's why they're goats. Yeah, that's a drive that comes from inside. I don't think you can coach it. I mean, from a psychological perspective, I don't think that's something you can instill in people. It's got to be a hunger that comes from inside. And I think if you can ever figure out how to coach that, instill that, role model that, in some way communicate that in a way that somebody can emulate or embrace, Jim, if you and I could figure out how to bottle that, we'd put Bill Gates in the shade. But... (laughs) I don't know how you do that. And maybe there's that extra level of talent, that extra 
vision or something, but it's got to come down to that drive. It's got to come down to that where they're willing to make the sacrifice and that singularness of purpose. I just believe that to be true. Well, there's a, there's a form of immortality that goes into this. And if it was easy, everybody would do it, but it's not easy. And that's why we have so few who we can look at and say, there they are. And, you know, then there's all of these things that come in. It's not just hard work and dedication. It's proper coaching and mentorship. And it's, you know, the confluence of events that, that stack all this up. Luck is also involved in it, you know. I know that Coach Wooden used to say, you know, the harder I work, the more luck I get, the luckier I get. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, there's, there's that as well. But when you see what these guys go through, I get to go every summer uh, up to Yellowstone uh, National Park and see Tom Brady uh, work out. He goes up there with his private trainer and a couple of his friends, sometimes some of the receivers that he works with, Danny Amendola, uh, perhaps Rob Gronkowski, Julian Edelman, they've all joined him over the years. Not every year, but from time to time. And if you see what this guy puts in, and this is a, a, the week and the month before training camp at altitude. Right. And he's trying to get that perfect throw to a bunch of guys, you know, some of us 60 years old plus, and he's out there working that, and he is engaged in that as he will be trying to win a Super Bowl because he has to get the mechanics right. And if he leaves that field that morning, he will not leave until he gets it right. And if that means it's another 20 minutes or another hour, he'll stand there with his, with his coach, Alex Guerrero, his personal coach and confidant, and he will get it right. Well, I'm sure it's the same exact thing. I know it is with Tiger Woods. You know, just think about what that took. Uh, after all of the surgeries, to not win a major from 2008 to 2019, yet that's the only way he measures himself, to have the neck surgery, the back surgery, the knee surgeries, uh, the scandal, the emotional problems that he had to endure, the psychological problems, the hitting of the fire hydrant, the DUI, and then to come back, come back and do that 11 years later at the age of 43? Yeah. And when you don't need to work another day in your life financially, because there are different kinds of currency. You know, there's social currency, spiritual currency, there's psychological currency, and there's that achievement currency. I believe they are driven by a different kind of currency than everybody else. Because if you're doing it for the money, you're long past it by then. That's a great, great point. It reminds me of a film that, that Bud Greenspan, who I mentioned earlier, did. And, and everybody listening should go watch this film. It's online on YouTube. It's called The Last African Runner. It's a story about John Stephen Aquari of Tanzania in 1968, the Olympic Games. And I won't ruin it. I'll give you the 30-second Reader's Digest. Everybody had gone home. The closing ceremonies were over. He was running in the hour and a half after the race ended. And there was John Stephen Aquari in the middle of the street still running with a broken kneecap. And he finished the race. He finished the race to an empty stadium. The flame had been doused. Everybody had gone back to their home countries, okay? And here was John Stephen Aquari of Tanzania because it was so beautifully written by Bud. A voice calls from within to go on. So he goes on. 
you watch this and you will cry. I've watched this a thousand times. I've cried 995 times. The other five times I was distracted by somebody who, who took my attention. And you see that that is within all of us, but the great ones. And so he was asked after the race. In fact, I asked him in 1984 and Bud had asked him several times, why did you finish the race? And he said, my country, Tanzania, saw fit to send me 5,000 miles away to this race. They didn't send me to start the race. They sent me to finish the race. Yeah. Yeah. Now that's a driven individual. And they say integrity is what you do when nobody's watching. (laughs) That's what he did when nobody was watching. Everybody had gone home. That's for damn sure. I'll watch that. Is it still on it, YouTube? It is. It is. It won an Emmy and it's brilliant. And I just never forget that line written by Bud Greenspan. His brother was a great narrator, a man named David Perry. A voice calls from within to go on. So he goes on. And then the last line in it is all honor to John Stephen Aquari of Tanzania. Well, that's what these guys do. They honor themselves. They honor their families. They honor the sport. They honor their countries, and they honor humanity when they do this stuff. Absolutely. That's something we should all aspire to. You wrote a book about talking to goats, and in all humility and candor, you definitely will be in someone else's book about goats, because when it comes to doing what you do as a broadcaster, you are definitely the greatest of all time at what you do. So what drives Jim Gray? What keeps you going after all this? This life that I've been able to lead and all of the people that I've been able to meet, I mean, it's been so fantastic. I mean, it's just been great. And I love meeting the people and I love listening to their stories. And I want to, you know, hear how they did it, why they did it. And, you know, try and see if, if what I can do in these interviews can help somebody else and help future generations so that we can have more goats. And so uh, I'm driven to hear other people's stories, to learn from them. And I want to be better tomorrow than I was yesterday. I can still improve. I've only done, I've done tens of thousands of interviews. I've done one or two of them right. Otherwise I've stumbled or I forgot about something or I didn't follow up right. Or I, you know, how many times do you walk away from a show, Dr. Phil, and you watch it and you say, boy, I should have asked this, or why did I stumble on that question? We still, I'm still trying to get it right. Every single show. Exactly. <laughs> Every single show. I don't usually regret what I said. I regret what I didn't say. You know, I should have said this here. I should have caught that there. I let somebody say something here that I should have called them on. I was interviewing a young girl the other day, and she referred to her little brother as such a retard. And that is such a derogatory term to me to refer to someone that way. It is such an insult to those that are mentally challenged. And I let that slide because I got distracted and didn't call her out for using that derogatory term. I've been pissed off for two months because I (laughs) let that slide. Somebody else said something and I didn't get back and call her for doing that and let her get away with it. It's that kind of thing that whatever else happened in the show, I know that I failed to stand up for the mentally challenged by letting her derogate them in that way. And so there's always something for certain. But 
You know, the thing that has always stood out to me about your interviews is that it's clear to me that you are genuinely curious about the things you're asking about, that you're not going through the motions with a series of questions, but that you have a genuine curiosity about the humanity of the moment, about the person you're talking to, about the why, the wherefore, about what's going on, that you have a genuine interest and curiosity, no matter who you're talking to, winner, loser, whatever, that you have a genuine curiosity and a respect for their answer, whatever it may be. And that is so different than so many interviewers who are checking the boxes and going through the questions. And that's why you get such authentic answers from people. I believe that to be true. Well, I thank you for that assessment. And it, and I, I believe that to be accurate because I am curious and I am genuinely interested and I want to hear and I want to learn. And I want others to be able to learn. The great news was that I was a videotape editor all those years ago, and I had learned from listening. I was able to listen and see what it was that the people were saying. And I could also hear the other reporters and the anchors so I could see what was good and what was bad and, 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 and you know, could try and, try and you know, figure out how to, how to plot a course. But I also had Johnny Carson on one screen after the news and Ted Koppel on the other. And Dr. Phil, they could listen, think, and react all at the snap of a finger. Yeah. And I said, this is brilliant. Look at these guys. And they were two totally different genres. Exactly. And they were both naturally curious, well-prepared, and brilliant. And I'm thinking, this guy in comedy and this guy in news. And so I figured out if I could somehow listen, think, and react, which is very hard. It's very hard. That's why I named two of the greatest ever in television. If you can do that, perhaps you could have a career in this. But I also found out that when you listen, you can develop a relationship. And if you can have a relationship, then you're going to be able to come back and do it again and again. They'll trust you. Even if you ask the hard question, if you listen to their answer, they know he'll let me tell my story. He'll let me tell my side of it and really listen to me. Even if you ask the hard questions, they know you'll give them a fair shake to tell their side. That's exactly correct. And somebody asked me this question a couple of years ago at the Boxing Hall of Fame. Mike Tyson came up and did my induction. And, you know, they said, somebody asked a question. He said, what about asking these guys tough questions? What about it? I said, well, you, you have to for the people you work with and for. But by the way, this guy just got hit in the head 150 times by Evander Holyfield. Tom Brady just got sacked four times by Michael Strahan. <laughs> yeah. Kobe Bryant has been elbowed in the head and had his foot stepped on 19 times. Do you really think that any question that I would ask them after this performance is offensive? More offensive than what they just went through? If they can't handle what I have to say, how did they ever compete in what they just did? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, I told Robin, I think it was about three years ago, I told her that you're the best at following my personal rule, which if you can't ask a question in two sentences, you weren't ready to ask it. And you almost never, ever violate that rule. It's like you ask the question and make the interview about them. And I admire the way you do that. So hats off to you for that as well. It's always about them. And they make the interview. You know, Sam Donaldson said there are no bad questions, only bad answers. <laughs> right? <laughs> exactly. When he wrote his memoir. Well, there are bad questions, obviously. But 
it's always the person being interviewed who makes the interview interesting. Yeah. And then you just have to listen and try and follow up and, and know, what, know what it is that the subject matter is. Yeah, it's the follow-up questions that make the interview click. And if you're not listening, you can't ask them. And that's great. And I was listening when they told me you had a hard out at uh, 45 past. So I'm going to respect your time. And in doing so, hopefully you'll do this with me again sometime. Jim, I can't tell you how much I appreciate this. And thank you for your answer about what it is you think is in common among people that are the greatest of all time. That's really informative what you shared with us today about that. So I thank you for that. Well, thank you for having me. I want to say something to you. I did a fight. The best fight I ever did was Castillo versus Corrales. It was an incredible fight. You can watch it. It was on Showtime. At the end of the fight, Diego Corrales won after being knocked down in the 11th round. He got up and won, beat uh, Castillo. I asked him at the end of the fight, how would you describe it? He said, this fight was an honor. I'll come on with you anytime, Dr. Phil. It was an honor to talk to you, and I appreciate well, it. Thank you so much. I'm humbled to hear that, and I'm going to take you up on that and talk to you again. I hope we cross paths as soon as this pandemic gets under control. I would love to. We're here in L.A. Stedman Graham is, is the reason I wrote this book. He's in the credits uh, for making me write down all these stories. And he's very fond of you, and they think so highly of you. And I bet you once or twice in person would love to spend some time with you. Yeah, he's a, he's a dear friend of mine. He hits a big, big surf when we play tennis, I'll tell you. It's usually a foot long, but I don't say anything. I just try to get out of the way. Well, he's been capped out up there at the Promised Land for about uh, since since March. He hasn't left, so we're on FaceTime two or three times a week, and he's going he's gonna to love that I spoke to you. Well, tell him I said hello, and I recall the times you and I have met briefly, and I hope we uh, see each other again soon, Jim. Thanks so much. Thanks, Dr. Phil. Appreciate Take it. Take care. Take care. Be yourself. safe. Be well. So long.